Speaking from Genesis, the second chapter, verses and in the New Testament, the third chapter of the book of Philippians, and verse number eight. So that's Genesis two sixteen and seventeen, and Philippians three and eight. It says in Genesis two sixteen and seventeen, the Lord God commanded the man, saying. Of every tree in the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And Philippians 3 and 8 it says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And brothers and sisters, and ladies and gentlemen, and saints and friends and boys and girls, on tonight I would like to talk to you about the science of Jesus. The science of Jesus. Sometimes people ask me, why do I get more than one scripture when I speak and my response to that is if I have more than one scripture and have a long text if the sermon is a flop you can't go home and say we didn't get no word now you see I've given you three scriptures so you have already heard some word and the thing about the word of God is good for everybody the Word of God will lift your spirit. The Word of God will thrill your soul. The Word of God will stretch your mind. The Word of God will warm your heart. The Word of God will tan your hide. And the Word of God will provoke your will. Now, if the Word of God don't light your fire, your wood is wet. If the Word of God doesn't ring your bell, your clapper must be broke. If the Word of God doesn't start your engine, your plugs need changing. Oh, I don't care who you are and where you have come from, the great Word of God is good for you. Somebody said that the Word of God is like the Pacific Ocean. A baby can wade in it, and a whale can swim in it. It is simple and profound, and it doesn't matter what level you are on, you can find something good in the great Word of God. So in the great Word of God tonight, I want to talk to you about the science of Jesus. Now, maybe you have never considered the fact that Jesus can be viewed as a science. We are living in 1990, getting ready to go in 1991. This is a day of extensive wisdom and explosive knowledge. We have broadened our scope. We have increased the productivity of our thinking. We have extended intellectual and scientific frontiers at the expense of contracting biblical and spiritual boundaries. And I'm here to tell you tonight, I don't care how scientifically enlightened and trained you are, if you are not enlightened and informed in the science of Jesus, you are either miseducated, undereducated, or not educated at all. Because until you see Jesus, you haven't seen nothing worth looking at. If you haven't heard about Jesus, you haven't heard nothing worth listening to. And if you are not talking about Jesus, you are not talking about nothing worth talking about. 
And the only way you can say less is by talking more. Because Jesus is what the world needs to hear. And Jesus is what the world needs to see. Somebody said, how can Jesus be a science when the Bible is not a science book? Brothers and sisters, the Bible is not a science book per se. But when the Bible speaks in areas of science, you better believe it. The Bible is accurate, correct, and absolutely always right on the money. Because the Bible is the only book in the world that came from the mind of God. Every other book in the world is the product of a human mind. We call this the land of the living. Let me be scientific. This is not the land of the living. This is the land of the dying. Because I'm dying and you dying. Why do you think you're wearing eyeglasses? Because you're dying. Why do you think your hair is turning gray? Because you're dying. Why do you think you take up more space than you used to take up? Because you're dying. Why do you think your knees and elbows are aching? Because you're dying. Everything is an indication that all of us are dying. And the end result of physical life is not life. The end result of physical life is death. And in this land of the dying, a dying woman and a dying man can only write a dying book. And the man will die, and the book will die. A dying woman and a dying man can only produce a dying product. Yesterday when the pastor was taking me from his home back to the hotel after I had eaten a delicious dinner at his home, Sister Dougal fixed some uh, was lasagna. That lasagna was good enough to join the church. We had eaten that dinner. We had good fellowship. We were talking. He was taking me back to the hotel, and his wipers quit. And I told him the reason his wipers on his automobile quit is because a dying man made his dying car. Everything that a man makes breaks down. Have you ever heard of the sun breaking down and a crew had to go out and fix the sun because it's 12 o'clock noon and the sun hasn't come up? The living God made the sun and God's stuff don't break down. But dying men can only produce dying products. And so the Bible is not a dying book. It's a living book. Everybody who writes a book, they will be a person that will die and the book going to die too. But the living God wrote the living word and the living word will live as long as the living God lives and the living God will always live. I remember one time I was sitting in class in school, this was years ago, and the instructor said, he said, books help the Bible. I said, no, teacher, you got it backwards. Books don't help the Bible. The Bible helps the books. He said, why do you think preachers have so many books? I said, I don't care how many books a preacher has. Books do not help the Bible. The Bible helps the books. I said, illustration. I said, how does a snake travel? We went and got the encyclopedia, and we read in the encyclopedia. It took 159 words in the encyclopedia to explain how a snake travels. I said, now let me show you where the Bible helps the books. In Genesis 3.14, God told the serpent, Upon thy belly shalt thou go. In one sentence, we see how a snake travels. He travels on the Word of God. He don't need no feet, wheels, or nothing. He's going because God said so. The Bible helps the books. Books don't help the Bible. And the Bible is 
the only book that came from the mind of God. So to be educated in the science of Jesus, you've got to be educated in the Bible. And one of the things you have to say about ministering the Word, the rule is kiss-mip. K-I-S-M-I-P. Keep it simple. Make it plain. Some people like to be deep. And some folk are so deep, they dig all the way through and go out the other end and don't nobody know what they said. And I think sometimes they don't know. But the rule is kiss me. Keep it simple. Make it plain. Preachers, teachers, exhorters, Sunday school ministers, keep it simple. Make it plain. A little boy and his sister came home from Sunday school. And their mother said, what was the lesson about? That's why I say, I think you ought to take your children to Sunday school. And the little boy said, Mama, the Sunday school lesson was about two little white fellas and a big, tough black dude. So the mama called up the Sunday school teacher and wanted to know what was the Sunday school lesson about. And the Sunday school teacher said, we taught them a great lesson from the third chapter of the book of Daniel about the three Hebrew men who were placed in a fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. She went back and asked the little boy, what was the lesson about? He said, two little white fellas and a big, tough black dude. He said, it was Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. Keep it simple. Make it plain. Whenever the Word of God is kept in its simplicity, even the children will be able to understand it. The Bible is a complexity in simplicity and a simplicity in complexity. The Bible is simply wonderful and wonderfully simple. It is simply marvelous and marvelously simple because the Bible is God's revelation to man. And the Bible contains the science of Jesus. So God created this handsome man. And God created this beautiful woman. And God placed them in a tropical garden, and God commanded the man, brothers, not the woman, the man. Here's the way we men are. We tell our wives and our sweethearts and our sisters and our mamas and our aunties, Adam was the first man, the woman got him. Samson was the strong man, the woman got him. Solomon was the wise man, and the woman got him. Well, let me tell you one man the woman didn't get then. That man, Christ Jesus. Adam's mistake was he listened to his woman at the wrong time. Samson's mistake was he got a haircut in the wrong barber shop. Solomon's mistake was he allowed himself to become erotically and romantically intoxicated and he loved too many women, brothers. You don't need but one woman, and you'll do good to take care of her. So God put this man and this woman in the tropical garden, and he gave the commandment to the man, and said, Of all these trees in the garden, you may eat of any of them, with the exception of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. With your permission, I'm going to call that tree the tree of science, because Science is knowledge. Now, they were at least, according to the science of botany, at least 110 trees in the garden. They could eat of any of the other 109 trees 
Just don't eat off of the one tree that illustrates in a very profound, eloquent, and unequivocal manner how the devil tempts you. The devil will always get your mind on something that you don't have, and you forget about all the blessings that you do have. This is the reason so many people are unthankful. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you can't thank God for your VW, you never will ride in the Continental. If you can't thank God for a fake rabbit fur, don't look for a mink. If you can't thank God for a bungalow, you never will live in a mansion. You've got to be thankful what you already have, and then God will bless you and give you the things that you want. They had all those trees they could eat from and could not eat off of one tree, and the devil put their mind on the one tree that they couldn't eat from. And they ate off of that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of science. And when they ate off of that tree, their scientific eyes were opened. And ever since then, from the Garden of Eden, we have been on a scientific rampage. We bow down and we worship science like science is God. Everybody wants to know, well, what does science say about this? What does science say about that? But brothers and sisters, you better find out what does the Word of God have to say about it. Because the Word of God has the final say. And the Word of God reveals to us the science of Jesus. So this man and woman ate up of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Good and evil, you see. Science is good. Because science gave us the tubercular vaccine and the smallpox vaccine and literally wiped tuberculosis and smallpox out. That's good. But science is evil because science made the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that killed 50,000 people instantaneously. Science is good and science is evil. The same chemists who make vitamins and put things together to aid the body also make crack cocaine that is destroying the minds of young people. Science is good and science is evil. And when the man and the woman ate off of the tree of the knowledge or science of good and evil, their scientific eyes were opened. But the great St. Paul spoke these words. He said, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge or the science of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Here's a young man who held three doctor degrees, Ph.D., Ph.D., and E.D.D. Here's a man who spoke 13 languages, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. The man had so many degrees, his degrees had degrees. But the great St. Paul said, all of this stuff I've learned in school, when I compare it with the knowledge of Jesus, I count it like the oats after they've been through the horse. I count them as dung that I may win Christ. Look, this is not an anti-education speech. I am not trying to encourage anybody not to get an education. What I'm trying to get you to see is put things in balance and perspective and learn about Jesus and know the Word of God. 
develop a capacity for a biblical and spiritual reality because I don't care how much you know if you don't know about Jesus and the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ you're missing all together if you don't know the science of Jesus the scientific world divide the sciences up into three categories they have the biological or the life sciences they have what we call the physical sciences and they have the social sciences and if you happen to be here tonight and you are a science major I'm here to tell you that if you don't know the science of Jesus you are scientifically untrained. The biological sciences are the sciences that deal with life. How can anyone consider themselves to be biologically trained in the life sciences and they don't know Jesus when Jesus Christ is the very life itself? Jesus is the life. You know, I like to ask intellectual giants who have PhDs in biology and botany and zoology and biophysics and biochemistry. I like to ask these fellows, I say, hey, what is life? And you know, all of them, you know, scientists, one thing a scientist does, use big words. A scientist will tell a man, you have no follicle appendages on the cutaneous apex of your cranial structure anterior to the sigillal suture and posterior to the lambdoidal suture where the follicular appendages do eventually germinate. Why don't the man just say, you bald-headed? They got to use all those big 13-cylinder triple-jointed reaction words to say something simple. Scientists love to use big words. And when I ask them what life is, they will tell me life is the ability to take in food and transfer food into energy. But wait a minute. That is not a definition. That is a description. That is not what life is. That's what life does. What is life? A man weighs 160 and he dies. And you put the dead man on the scale and the dead man still weighs 160 but life is gone so it must be weightless because you can't weigh life on the scale. The x-ray technician and the photographer cannot take a picture of life and print it on a slide and hand it to you and say, life looks like this. Life is invisible, can't put no price tag on it. Life is invaluable, and if you don't know Jesus, life is insatiable. In the university, in the science department, in the encyclopedia, in the library, there is no definition for life. I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm going to give you one. In St. John 11:25, I hear the young theologian say, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. And oh yes, to know Jesus is to know the life itself. Because you see, Jesus is the life. Do you want life? Anybody here want to die? You know, it's one thing about people, they love life. Very few people want to die. I hear people up in church testifying, Oh, I love Jesus, and I want to go to a good heaven and be with a good Jesus. And as soon as the pain hits them, they call every preacher in town, Come pray for me quick. I want to get well. But if you want to go into heaven and be with Jesus, you got to die now. So everybody want to go to heaven, but they don't want to go tonight. 
Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to go and be with Jesus until the right time comes. Jesus is the life. Now, I don't care what kind of life you want, Jesus has it. If it's physical life, see Jesus. If it is spiritual life, see Jesus. If it's everlasting life, see Jesus. If it's eternal life, see Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the life itself. And anybody who claims to be a biologist and who claims to be intelligent in the life sciences and don't know Jesus, you missed it all together because you don't know the life itself. Jesus is the life. In St. John 14 and 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now you got in that particular verse, three for the price of one. Jesus is the way. Without the way, you can't go. Jesus is the truth. Without the truth, you can't know. Jesus is the life. Without the life, you can't live. 85th Psalm, verse 11, the Bible said, Truth shall spring from the earth. I thought that verse meant if you cover up the truth and hide the truth like weeds in the garden, truth will spring up out the earth. I found out what the verse really is teaching is that truth was personified. Truth was made to be a person. And they took truth and marched truth out to a hill called Calvary. And there at Calvary, they assassinated truth. After they assassinated truth, they took him down off the cross and buried truth in the ground, and three days later, truth sprang from the earth. You can't keep the truth down. <clears throat> and because Jesus is the life, it makes the real, true, definitive, apostolic book of Acts, Christianity, the one superior religion in all the world. They talk about the world has seven paramount religions. Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Communism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. They got it mixed up. There are no seven paramount religions of the world. It's the big one and the little six. And the big one is the Christian faith because the Christian faith is centered in Jesus Christ because He is the life. Go to the grave site of Buddha and the tombstone says, here he lies. Go to the grave site of Confucius. The tombstone says, here he lies. Go to the grave site of Martin Luther King Jr. And the man on the tour guide will tell you his body is down in there. But go to the grave site of Jesus and the angel will say, he is not here. He is risen. I was, on, I was on the King program, and I told them, I said, the outstanding thing about Dr. Martin Luther King's grave is he's in it, and the thing about Jesus' grave is he ain't in it. Jesus is the only one who ever rose from the dead, like he predicted, because Jesus Christ is the very life itself. And the Bible says, to know him is life eternal. And if you want to be scientifically enlightened, and you want to know the science of Jesus, start with life, and start with Jesus. And the life that he wants to give you is the life that you can only have by being born again. You know, born again, born the second time. Born again. Everybody in here has been born once. But let me explain. If you've only been born once, you got to die twice. Most people are afraid of death. If you don't want to mess with death, 
two times, you better get born two times. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nothing else will work but being born again. All these folks talking about, they hung over hell on a spider web. That ain't going to work. Got their head wet with the midnight dew. Their dungeon shook and their chains fell off. Gave the preacher their hand, the secretary the name, and the Lord their heart. Fell out in the cotton field. The cool breeze blows on their head behind the barn. Put their head under the tub in Louisiana. Walked on the fence line at the midnight hour in Alabama and didn't fall off. Don't none of that junk work. You must be born again. Got to be born again. And to be born again is easy as A, B, C, Do, Re, Mi, One, Two, Three. All you have to do is repent. And repent means be sorry for the wrong you've done. It don't mean go back and try to fix nothing. Just be sorry that you did it. My wife's friend, he sneaked his mama's car out. That is, my wife's friend's son, 17-year-old, he sneaked his mama's brand-new Oldsmobile out on a day like today, driving with his girlfriend with one hand, showing off, trying to hug her, and wrecked the car, hold it. Wrapped it around a tree, they were blessed to escape with their lives. When the police got there, here was this 17-year-old young fella out in the snow with his knees in the, in the snow, his hands lifted up so high, it looked like he was trying to pull the sky down. He was praying, Oh, Lord God, in Jesus' name, come quick now, like a hurry up, and fix this car back like it was, because my mama's going to kill me. I didn't wreck your brand new car. You can't fix it back. It's wrecked. That's it. You can't go back and fix nothing. The Bible said repent. And if you repent, you've done your job. We will water baptize you in Jesus' name. And we've done our job. And God will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. That's His job. You work. We work. And God works. Your job, repent. Our job, baptize you in Jesus' name. And God's job, to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And if you want it, you can get it because we love to see you with it. But when the Lord comes, if you haven't got it, you're going to have to do without it. It'll be too late then. You can't afford to leave here and don't know the life itself. And the life itself is Jesus Christ. So if you're going to be scientifically trained, the science of Jesus presents to the science of biology Jesus, who is the life itself. And to the science of zoology, which is animal life, I would like to present to you Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now look at the revelation of the Lamb. In the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis, you know the story, Abraham went to the mountain called Moriah to offer up Isaac. Abraham was ready to kill his son Isaac. Now look, you know he had to strip off from Sarah. Don't you know that if your pastor, Reverend Tim Dugas, was to take Matthew and tell Sister Mary Dugas, I'm going off and offer up this boy, his funeral would be the next Friday. Abraham had to slip off from Sarah and not let Sarah know what he was going to do. And Abraham was taking that son off to offer him up, and he was ready to slay that son, but there was a ram in the thicket. The Bible said in the 8th chapter of the book of Genesis, Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day saw it and was glad. When did Abraham see Jesus' day? In the 22nd chapter of Genesis, when he saw that ram in the thicket, that ram in the thicket was offered for a sacrifice in the place of Isaac, and it was called a lamb for substitution. In the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, when they came out of Egypt, 
Every family killed a lamb and sprinkled the blood on the lintel and the doorpost. And the deaf angel, when they came by, the Bible said, he said, When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. A lamb for a family. In the fourth chapter of the book of Leviticus, the Levitical lamb was the lamb for the nation. Look at it. A lamb for a person. A lamb for a family. A lamb for a nation. But in St. John 129, when John saw Jesus coming down the road in Beth Arbor, John pointed Jesus out and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Not a lamb for a person only, or a family only, or a nation only, but a lamb for the whole world. And his name is Jesus. <clears throat> and the great St. John put it in a nutshell when he said in St. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Look at that one. For the purpose of love, God, the person of love, so the degree of love, loved, the act of love, the world, the object of love that he gave, the proof of love, his, the possession of love, only the uniqueness of love, begotten, the value of love, son, the gift of love, that whosoever the scope of love, believeth the simplicity of love, in the location of love, him the attraction of love, should not perish the preventative of love, but the contrast of love, have the guarantee of love, everlasting the duration of love, and life the quality of love. All that love is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God that died for the whole world. <coughs> And if you want to get educated in the science of botany or plant life, I present to you Jesus, the Rose of Sharon. What the Bible said, the Bible said in the 52nd chapter of the book of Isaiah, that Jesus would grow up like a tender plant. Now, a tender plant, all flowers are plants, but all plants are not flowers. For a plant to become a flower, the seed blossom has got to flourish, and the plant must bloom. And when the plant blooms, then you see the flowers. Jesus did not come into the world to be a plant. He came to be the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. But when they cut him off at Calvary as a tender plant, he didn't bloom. But don't worry and don't fret. Because Jesus Christ is coming back again. He will reign a thousand years in the millennium. We will reign with him. And he will be the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. And to the science of botany, I give you Jesus, the rose of Sharon. Jesus is the science of sciences. And the textbook for this particular science is the Bible. Because the Bible gives you the credentials of Jesus. Suppose Jesus was coming to St. Louis, Missouri to open up an office on Wednesday after the holiday. Whenever you open up an office, whatever you do, you hang your license and your credentials on the wall. If you're a dentist, you put your dental uh, credential and your degree from dental school. If you're a lawyer, you put your law degree and your, your probably bar exam. And if you're a CPA, you put your certification and your accounting degree. What could Jesus hang on the wall for credentials? Jesus didn't even go through the schoolyard, let alone the school. But you know why Jesus didn't go to school? School have recess and Jesus don't play. Now what could Jesus hang on the wall for his credentials? Nothing but the Bible, because the Bible gives you 
the credentials of Jesus. In the Old Testament, Jesus is veiled. But in the New Testament, Jesus is unveiled. In the Old Testament, Jesus is wrapped. New Testament, Jesus unwrapped. Old Testament, the coverted Jesus. New Testament, the overted Jesus. Old Testament, Jesus veiled. New Testament, Jesus unveiled. Old Testament, the intimate Jesus. New Testament, the ultimate Jesus. Old Testament, Jesus the innermost. New Testament, Jesus the uttermost. Old Testament, Jesus contained. New Testament, Jesus explained. Old Testament, Jesus concealed. New Testament, Jesus revealed. Old Testament, Jesus enfolded. New Testament, Jesus unfolded. Old Testament, Jesus impounded. New Testament, Jesus expounded. Old Testament, Jesus in picture. New Testament, Jesus in person. Old Testament, Jesus in shadow. New Testament, Jesus in substance. Old Testament, the indicated Jesus. New Testament, the illustrated Jesus. Old Testament, the panoramic Jesus. New Testament, the psychoramic Jesus. Old Testament, the eternity of Jesus. New Testament, the paternity of Jesus. But it don't matter whether it's older knew Jesus is the God of both testaments. So Jesus is the mighty God. And if you want to be a real scientist, you better know the science of Jesus. When you look at the physical sciences, there are five great principles to the physical sciences. The five great principles of the physical sciences are time, Space, matter, energy, and motion. Jesus answers all five of the principles. Somebody said the Bible doesn't have any scientific integrity. Look at this. In the beginning, God, time, created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. The Spirit of God, energy, moves on the face of the waters, motion. There it is in the book. Time, space, matter, energy, motion. The first cause of time must be eternal. Nobody who has a birthday anniversary can be the first cause of time. If you have a birthday, then you cannot be the first cause of time because whoever created time had to exist before time. The first cause of time must be eternal. The first cause of space must be infinite. The first, cause of, the first cause of matter must be omniscient. Sometimes we call, we call Jesus intelligent. Brothers and sisters, it is an insult to call Jesus intelligent. You're intelligent. You went back to school, and you got your MBA, and you work at IBM, and you drive a BMW. You're intelligent. But the word is too weak and too pitiful to use for Jesus. He is so much more than intelligent. He is omniscient. Jesus knows everything. The first cause of energy must be omnipotent. And the first cause of motion must be omnipresent. And Jesus is our omnipresent God. Jesus is uh, everywhere here now. Everywhere there now. Leaving you. Coming to you. Ain't never went nowhere, God. People are talking about, we had a good service. The Lord came in. Came from where? How can the God we serve that is everywhere come or go anywhere? He got here. He was, he was here when you got here. And he's here when you leave here. And when you come back, he'll still be here. And he'll be where you're going to. Jesus fulfills every one of the five great 
principles of science, time, space, matter, energy, and motion is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only legitimate answer that we have to the scientists. When the chemist experiments to the truth and the archaeologist digs up the truth and the philosopher reasons out the truth, like the Bible says in Ephesians 4.21, the truth is in Jesus. And there is no real truth that will not harmonize with the Word of God and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at the social sciences, you start with linguistics. Linguistics is the science of language, grammar, and communication. And when you talk about linguistics, how can you leave out Jesus? When Jesus said in Revelation 1 and 8, listen to him. He said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Did you notice that Jesus said he was the ending, E-N-D, I-N-G? You know how come? Because the end ends. But there is no end to the ending. See, the end ends. But Jesus is the ending, and there is no end to the ending. Jesus said he was Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, said he is, was, and is to come. That verse in the Bible is what you call a transliterated verse. These are Greek letters put into English characters, but the translation is not there. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. It's equivalent to the English A. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet, but it's equivalent to the English long O, like the cow said, moo, or the ghost said, boo. Now translate that. It would translate like this. I am A, and I know I'm watching my watch. I told you 45 minutes is long enough for a good sermon and too long for a bad one. When I make a statement like that, people talk about, but Brother James, suppose the Lord take over. Well, I want to know who was in charge before the Lord take over then. The Lord don't have to take over. He's already in charge. <coughs> I am A, and I am O. Now, that don't work right. You know how some you've translated the letters, and you haven't translated it. The thought, the idea, the concept. We're going to try it again. Alpha is the first letter, and omega is the last letter. All right. A is the first letter. Z is the last letter. We'll try it like this. I am A and I'm Z. That works better. We are now in the right cotton patch to get our hundred, but it's not working correctly all the way fully yet because he said he is, was, and is to come. Don't think about Jesus as being alpha on that end. And Omega on that end, he's Alpha on that end, Omega on that end, and everything in between, too. Whenever we send our children to school, the first thing they learn is the alphabet. You know how come? Every English word is made up of 26 letters in the English alphabet. In the library, the largest dictionary has over 600,000 words. Every one of these words are all made up the 26 letters. If you don't learn the alphabet, you would never be able to know all the words. When Jesus says, I'm Alpha and Omega, he is saying, I'm God's alphabet. Look, certain letters mean certain things. If I say to some of you young people, NIP and NCAA, what do you think about collegiate sports? If I say NBA and NFL, you think about 
big league sports. If I say uh, CBS and ABC and NBC, you think about broadcasting. If I say ATT and ITT, those letters make you think about communications. If I say UPC and PAW and PAJC, you think about religious organizations. If I say FBI, CIA, KGB, and IRS, you think about terrorism. Certain letters just mean certain things, don't they? But whenever you read in the Bible, Alpha and Omega, those letters represent the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Just like the alphabet makes up every word in the dictionary, when Jesus said, I'm Alpha and Omega, Jesus is saying, I am God's alphabet. And Jesus is saying then, since I'm God's alphabet, and the alphabet makes words, He is in the beginning was the Word, He is also God's Word, and there is no God idea, God concept, God revelation, God exposition, or God disposition apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's everything. Jesus is God's alphabet. So, here's what Jesus is saying. Don't get Alpha on that end, Omega on that end. Alpha is the point where you start to think. You start with Jesus. Omega is the point where you stop thinking. You conclude with Jesus, and there is no intelligent thinking out of Jesus. You start with Jesus, you think through with Jesus, and you close out with Jesus. And if you do any thinking out of Jesus, you are not thinking correctly. So what Jesus is really saying, not Alpha and Omega, he's saying, I'm Alpha through Omega. Or if you're Hebrew, I'm Olive through Tom. Or if you're Egyptian, I'm Ox through Box. But since we speak English, he's trying to tell you, I'm your A through Z. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Greeks, I'm your Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta, Iota, Kappa, Lambda, Mu, Nu, Exiomi, Prime, T, Rho, Sigma, Tau, Epsilon, Phi, Psi, Chi, Omega. If you're a Hebrew or a Jew, I'm your Aleph, Beth, Gimel, with the Left, He, Bob, Zion, Kef, Tef, Yod, Kef, Lamed, Main, Noon, Psalmic, A, and Faith, Faith, Saudi, Coop, Rate, Sing, Sing, Tau, Tau. But tonight I'm going to tell you, he's your A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. What do you mean? A, Genesis 17 and 1, and Revelation 1 and 8, Jesus is the Almighty God. B, Luke 1, 68, Jesus is the Blessed God. C, 1 Peter 5, 7, Jesus is the Caring God. D, Daniel 3, 17, Jesus is the Delivering God. E, Deuteronomy 33, 27, Jesus is the Eternal God. F, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Jesus is the Faithful God. G, Titus 2, 13, Jesus is the Great God. H, Leviticus 19, 2, Jesus is the Holy God. I, Job 32, 8, Jesus is the Inspiring God. J, Exodus 24, Jesus is the Jealous God. K, Psalm 17, 8, Jesus is the Keeping God. L, 1 John 4, 8, Jesus is the Loving God. M, Isaiah 9 and 6, Jesus is the Mighty God. N, James 4, 7, Jesus is a Nigh God. O, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is an Omnipotent God. P, Philippians 1 and 6, Jesus is the Performing God. Q, 1 Timothy 6, 13, Jesus is the Quickening God. R, Nehemiah 9, 
17, Jesus is already God. F Isaiah 35, 4, Jesus is the saving God. T Jeremiah 10, 10, Jesus is the true God. U Exodus 3, 14, Jesus is the unlimited God. V First Thessalonians 5, 23, Jesus is the very God. W St. John 5, 17, Jesus is a working God. X Second Chronicles 16 and 9, Jesus is the God with the X-ray vision that see everything. Y Matthew 27, 50. Jesus is a yelly of God, and in and uh, uh, John two seventeen, Jesus is a yelly of God. So Jesus is God's alphabet, and there is no God revelation apart from Jesus Christ. And to the science of linguistics is nothing to offer but Jesus. Jesus is the message that the world needs to hear. And until the world receives the Jesus message, it'll never get straightened out. No wonder St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. St. Paul didn't mean he didn't know nothing else to talk about. What St. Paul meant was, other than Jesus, is nothing else worth talking about. That's what St. Paul meant, because Jesus is the message for the message. And until the world receives the Jesus message, the world will never get straightened up. Oh yes, there is a science above all sciences. And that science is the science of Jesus. And when it comes to getting to know Jesus, the world has been duped. And the world has been tricked. And the world has been deceived. But I want to say this tonight in conclusion. The way you get to know Jesus is by the new birth. By being born again. You must be born again. What the Bible said in Romans 9 and 12. said the elder shall serve the younger. Now that's backwards. In biblical times, the young brothers had to wait on the older brothers. And you know how it is growing up. If you were an older brother or sister, your mom and daddy go away, they put you in charge and you boss your little brothers and sisters around. I used to hate for my mama to go away because she put my sister in charge of me. And my mama would tell me, now you got to, Johnny, you got to do what Susie says. If you don't obey Susie, when I get back home, your behind is mine. I used to hate to have to obey my sister. But he turned it around and said that the elder would serve the younger. You know what that means? It means that the old brother or the older one is not in charge. The younger one is in charge. Look at that now. If you look at me carefully, it's two Johnny James is standing up here. You see two of me? Spent, look good. It's two of me. One Johnny was born April 1, 1930. That's the old Johnny. He's 60. Then there's another Johnny standing here who was born June 22nd, 1954. He's a young Johnny. He's 36. The young Johnny is born again. He's younger, stronger, and smarter than the old Johnny. And whenever the old Johnny want to act the fool and act crazy, the young born again Johnny, baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, grabs the old Johnny, throws him down on the floor, sits in his chest, shakes him and says, behave yourself because you've been born again. You got to be born again. <clears throat> I just got to I just got to preaching a revival at the Mountain Home Air Force Base in Mountain Home, Idaho. All of the chaplain services sponsored the revival by the Air Force. 
the Roman Catholic, the Lutheran, the Episcopalian, Presbyterian, the Methodist, Protestant, and the Gospel. All of them got together. I told all of those military personnel and everybody that came to the meeting, I said, you cannot get saved until you obey the book of Acts. Some of those chaplains got so mad you could fry an egg on their head. One of them jumped up and said, you mean to tell me, you're telling me that if I don't obey the book of Acts and get baptized in Jesus' name and get the Holy Ghost speaking in that mumbo-jumbo tongues, I'm going to be lost? I said, no, Reverend. That ain't what I said. You wasn't listening. I didn't tell you that if you didn't get baptized in Jesus' name and get the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues, you was going to be lost. I told you you was already lost. I told you you're lost right now. It is not but one way to be born again. I told them you can't get saved till you obey the book of Acts. One fellow said, what you going to do with the Old Testament? So they ain't going to do nothing with it but read it and preach it and teach from it and do workshops and seminars from it, but you can't get saved till you obey the book of Acts. The Old Testament is called the Old Covenant. God gave the Old Covenant in seven sections. He gave the Edenic Covenant in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1.28. They sinned. God put them out of the garden. And in Genesis 3.15 through 19, He gave them the Adamic Covenant. And then in Genesis 8.22 and Genesis 9, God gave Noah the Noahic covenant. In Genesis 12.1-3, God gave Abraham the Abrahamic covenant. Exodus 19 and 20, God gave the Moses to give the Israel the Mosaic covenant. Deuteronomy 30 and 3, God gave them the Palestinian covenant. Second Samuel 7.16, He gave them the great Davidic covenant. And ain't nobody saved yet. So God took the seven covenants took the feature element of each covenant which predicted and centered in Jesus, took the seven covenants, wrapped them up in one package, and he gave us a covenant called the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is the baptism in water in Jesus' name and the baptism in the Holy Ghost, and you can't get that till you obey the book of Acts. Then they say, well, what you going to do with the four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. said, nothing but read them and preach them. Matthew wrote to the Jew that Christ is the king. Mark wrote to the Romans, that Christ is a servant. Luke wrote to the Greeks and said Christ is a man. And John wrote to the world and said Christ is God. But then none of them tell you how to get him. None of them told you how to get saved. Matthew said he was the promised Savior. Mark said he was the powerful Savior. Luke said he was the perfect Savior. And John said he was the personal Savior. Matthew told you what Jesus taught. Mark told you what Jesus wrought. Luke told you what Jesus brought. And John told you what Jesus thought. But then none of them tell you how to be born again. You can't receive the new birth and be born again until you obey the book of Acts. They think that they are an athlete in the Olympic Games doing the long jump. The long jump is where you run down the trail, jump off the board over the grassy area into the sand pit. Here's what the false preacher is doing every day on radio and television. They run through the Old Testament. They take off in the four Gospels. They jump over the book of Acts. And they land in the 10th chapter of Romans, verse number 9, talking about believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. I'm not talking about being saved. I'm talking about getting saved. You ain't going to be nowhere until you get there first. And you're not going to be saved until you get saved. And you can't get saved until you obey the book of Acts. Your pastor invited me to come here to St. Louis 
after the set up in Detroit, talking about I'll be in St. Louis, be sitting up here looking like a Texas new in Arkansas, and wouldn't be here enjoying this great service with you. I had to, my son had to take me to the airport, had to get on the plane, fly into St. Louis, and your pastor picked me up and brought me here, and now I can say that I'm here, I can be here, because I got here. You ain't going to be nowhere till you get there first, and you can't be saved till you get saved, and you can't get saved till you obey the book of Acts. So look, they jump over the book of Acts. I don't care how good they jump. I don't care if they jump so good they land in Revelation, Jude, the three Johns, two Peters, James, Hebrews, Philemon, Titus, two Timothys, two Thessalonians, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, the two Corinthians and Romans. Everything is saying, go on back to Acts and repent. Go on back to Acts. Get baptized in Jesus' name. Go on back to Acts and get the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues. And after you get saved, then you can go to Romans and be saved and go to Corinthians and think saved and Galatians and live saved. But you ain't going to be saved, think saved, or live saved until you first get saved. And you can't get saved if you obey the book of Acts. It ain't, it ain't but one way, but one way to be saved. And people ask me, well, Brother James, what about all those people? All what people? Do you think that the Lord has a special set of rules for somebody? What about all those people at the flood times? All them wonderful wives that probably were cooking good dinners for their family. All those nice girls, virgin girls, and queen-cut young men. I don't care. It is estimated there were about 80,000 people in the immediate ark area, and what but eight people saved that went in the ark. Didn't nobody have their own canoe and own rowboat out there in the flood? It is not but one way to be saved, and the book of Acts is the only book in the Bible that tells you how to be born again. It's just that simple. Look at this. 27 books in the New Testament. Four Gospels introduced. Then the book of Acts is the beginning of the church. After the book of Acts, you have the Pauline and the general epistles. One book tells you how to be born again, and it takes 22 books to tell you how to mature and practice holiness and live the saved life. And the great St. Paul wrote his Roman letter in Romans 1 and 7. He said, I'm writing to the saints in Rome. The saints in Rome were the people who already been to the water, already been baptized, already got the Holy Ghost, and already feel all right. And he wasn't telling them how to get saved. He was talking about the saving process and not the saving event. There's not but one way to be saved. And for you to be exposed to the science of Jesus, First, you need to be saved, or you need to be born again. The water baptism in Jesus' name, if you repent, you get remission of sins. See, people today will tell you that the baptism in Jesus' name is not necessary. We had a brother who left the church I belonged to in Detroit, and he went to a so-called charismatic church. And he said, Johnny, I'll go to a word church now. I said, what do you think we preach out of, the comic book or the phone book? I said, this is a word, church. I said, you have missed the first word. The first word is how to be born again. Oh, yeah, they'll tell you how to get a Cadillac and how to get a Mercedes, but don't you know you are better off to go to heaven walking than to go to hell riding in a Cadillac or a Mercedes? The first word of all is you must be born again. The baptism in Jesus' name is for the remission of sins. Now... They say, well, do you have to do it? No, you don't have to get baptized in Jesus' name. 
only if you plan on going to heaven. Now, if you can figure out a way to take your sins to heaven with you, you don't need the baptism in Jesus' name. The water baptism in Jesus' name is for the remission of sins. The baptism in Jesus' name deals with the penalty of sin, and the baptism in the Holy Ghost deals with the practice of sin. The water baptism in Jesus' name legally saves you, and the baptism in the Holy Ghost morally saves you. The water baptism in Jesus' name puts you in Christ, and the baptism of the Holy Ghost puts Christ in you. The water baptism in Jesus' name gives you your standing, and the baptism in the Holy Ghost gives you your status. Don't let nobody tell you that the baptism in water in Jesus' name it is, is not necessary. It is necessary because it is the only formula on the planet Earth where you can get your sins remitted. There is no medical facility, no doctor, surgeon, or neurosurgeon, or anybody in the medical world can give you an operation or give you a pill or a shot and get rid of your sins. Nothing will do it but the water baptism in Jesus' name. And the baptism in the Holy Ghost will give you power over sin. Now, if you get the Holy Ghost at 24 and live from 24 to 44, a holy saved life, that's good. But the Holy Ghost does not forgive all the stuff you did before you get it. All that the Holy Ghost does is give you power over the sin nature. It doesn't go back and, re and forgive what you've done up to that point. Nothing can forgive your past sins but the application of the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible said we're buried with him in baptism, second chapter of Colossians, and raised by the faith of the operation of God. God operates in the water with the blood and washes sins away in Jesus' name. No other formula, no other way. You have to do it like the Bible says. And when you do it like the Bible says, and are born again, please come to Bible class. And come to Sunday school and come, up, come to all of the word-oriented services. And along with all of the other things you learn, learn and know about Jesus. And establish in your own heart the knowledge of Christ. Because the knowledge of Christ is the science of Christ. And the science of Jesus is greater than all of these sciences that they teach in all of these schools. And all of these sciences... We rave about. So, there is a science that is the superlative science. It is the science of sciences. And that science is the science of Jesus. Every tree you may freely eat, but of one tree, the tree of the science or knowledge of good and evil. And St. Paul says, I count everything lost, but for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ or the science of Christ. And in conclusion, if you are not educated to Jesus, about Jesus, and in Jesus, your education is insufficient. It is not good enough. You must know Jesus because Jesus is the superlative science.